If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From his accession uh, to the Battle of Agincourt, I think Henry is hyperactive. He just wants to do so much. Perhaps he's not been able to do before he became king. That was Anne Curry on the early years of Henry V. He was the son of a, a dodgy pub landlord from Putney, or the Shearman's son, as he's otherwise called. Uh, and yet he becomes top dog in the nation. And the nobility clearly hated that. And that was Dermot McCulloch on Thomas Cromwell. and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Rob Attar and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good news agents and on subscription. Head to historyextra.com forward slash subscribe for subscription deals. We also have digital editions available for the iPad, the Kindle, the Kindle Fire and Google Play. We've got a page on our website where you can find details of all of our digital formats, including price, content and availability, and you'll find that at historyextra.com forward slash digital. It was 600 years ago this month that arguably England's greatest king, Henry V, arrived on the throne. Henry is regularly fated for his virtuous nature and inspirational military leadership. But there was another side to him too. As historian Anne Curry writes in a piece for our March issue... Henry the Prince had a far less noble career, ineffectual in battle and no stranger to licentious behaviour. I caught up with Anne a couple of weeks ago to find out more. 
Would you say it's fair to describe Henry V as a great king? On the whole, I think it is. I mean, I think if you take great to meaning having a, a huge impact, really, it's not just great in personality, but it's his impact on England, indeed on, on Europe and uh, the legacy. I think all of that amounts to great. And, and was that due to his own personal qualities, some of this? Can we, can we credit him for his greatness? I mean, clearly there's a lot of infrastructure uh, that's important. You know, I mean, the people who fought at Agincourt, he's only one of them. All the money that went in, went into it, all the organisation that went in, went into it, That a lot of that was sort of existing infrastructure. But I think you've got to have an inspiring leader. I think throughout history, that's shown to be the case. Somebody without those powers of inspiration isn't really going to get anywhere. And somebody who is personally brave, personally involved and engaged, I it really makes a hell of a difference. And one thing I think that I've I've done since I wrote the uh, piece is work a bit more on how he changed himself when he became king. I suppose one aspect of his current reputation is the Shakespearean portrayal of him in Henry V. A lot of people could probably recite some of the speeches from that. Do you do you think the Shakespeare play is in any way representative of his true character? I think it is reflective of his true character as an inspiring leader, as somebody who was totally committed to the cause that he he'd started. And I think that's one thing that you see as well. You know, if he wanted to do something, he really did it. He went for it in every possible way. So we have this image nowadays, perhaps, or the popular perception of Henry V is of a successful warrior king, quite a virtuous king. But in the article that you just mentioned, you've written for our magazine, you paint a very different picture of the young Henry as a prince. Could you briefly, for our listeners, just give us a quick idea of, of what Henry the Prince was like? Well, I think Henry the Prince was a bit of a wastrel, somebody who was not terribly committed, who didn't feel his uh, uh, talents were being used to best effect. I mean, obviously, this emerges as he gets older. We perhaps can't say this about him when he first becomes prince at the age of 13. But I think by the time he gets to his late teens, we are detecting this, uh, a rather kind of lackadaisical approach, uh, not very well organised in his siege of Aberystwyth. Um, not that engaged in the Welsh Wars, getting annoyed with uh, some of his father's advisers. As I say, just being a bit uh, uh, lacklustre and uh, not really being wholly involved in government. He is briefly between 14, 10, uh, 11. But then when his father recovers his health, his father reverses uh, the prince's pol policies. And it seems at that point that the two of them fall out big time, really. So I think he's somebody who isn't a very good team player under his father. So it might be pointing to uh, somebody who wants to be the leader, somebody who wants to be in control. And he can't be, of course, while his father's alive. So you put down this lackluster attitude to the fact that he didn't like not being in charge. He, he wanted to be the boss and until he was, he wasn't prepared to commit himself fully. I think that's how it develops uh, at the end of the reign in sort of 14, 11, 12. I'm not sure earlier. Uh, I think earlier, uh, perhaps, you know, he was somebody who was thrust into the limelight at an early age, very much under the control of his father, because he's part of the establishment of the Lancastrian dynasty, perhaps forced to do things against his will, not particularly interested, perhaps, in uh, government. Uh, the Welsh War is interesting, too 
in that he loses lots of money as a result of it. All his lands in North Wales and South Wales are rendered valueless. Uh, there's quite a lot of evidence to suggest he's hard up. So you may be kind of thinking, mm, well, you know, this prince thing's not really all it's, it's uh, uh, sort of cracked up to be. And were, there, were there any repercussions for Henry about these failures and about his behaviour at this time? I get the impression that his father didn't wholly trust him as a military commander. There are quite a lot of other people are given uh, commands alongside him. Uh, his independence of command does not seem that extensive. It's written up later, you know, in the, the, the later texts as being perhaps greater than it was uh, at, the, uh, at the time. I think also his relations with his father and some of his father's advisors, as I say, become very bad indeed. Uh, at the end of the reign. And that's that's a bad situation, really, for a newly established dynasty. But I think it points to, a, uh, it explains a lot about his policies when he first becomes king. I mean, from his accession uh, to the Battle of Agincourt, I think Henry is hyperactive. He just wants to do so much, perhaps he's not been able to do before he became king. Now, Henry V's father was Henry IV. Was, was Henry concerned about the behaviour of, of his son? Was he worried about whether he'd be able to carry on his line successfully? I think he was, and I think we see this with some of the stories that develop about the relationship between father and son at the end of the reign. I mean, it certainly seems that in 1411, uh, his father uh, dismisses him almost from the, the court, and also that um, they, they have a great difference of opinion over foreign policy. Henry the Prince supports the Burgundians and sends an army to help them in 1411. In the following year, in 1412, the king comes to an arrangement with the Armagnacs, the enemies of the Burgundians, and the prince is, I think, bitterly opposed to that. And we can perhaps see that in the, the fact that his father insisted that he should be included in the treaty. You know, he was obliged to accept the terms that his father had negotiated. He was then furious that he wasn't chosen as commander for the expedition in 1412. His younger brother Thomas was chosen and Thomas was elevated to the uh, become Duke of Clarence uh, at that point. And uh, if the Chronicle of Walsingham is to be believed, Henry the Prince actually sends a public le letter out complaining uh, about his treatment and saying that there are people, uh, you know, uh, evil people, so snakes at his father's bosom spreading rumours about him and saying that he's not loyal and that kind of thing. This is quite serious stuff. Was there any threat at all that Henry IV would potentially take away his right to inherit and perhaps try and put his brother on the throne after his death? No, I don't think there is any truth in that. I think that uh, his choice of him as commander is one thing. Um, it may have been something that was was sort of been rumoured. I mean, the, the sort of popular response might have been, you know, that the king is showing more favour to his second son. But I don't think there's anything to suggest a disruption to the uh, inheritance. There is some English chronicles of the mid-15th century that suggest that Prince Henry and Henry Beaufort, the Bishop of Winchester, had approached the king, uh, persuading him, trying to persuade him to abdicate. Um, now, whether that is true uh, or not, because it says abdicate on the grounds that he has leprosy, and we now know that that's a myth as well. We know that Henry IV had bad health, but it wasn't due to leprosy. Um, if, if there is any 
truth in this, then you can see why Henry IV was kind of worried about a party developing round the prince. Um, the same chronicle that has the open letter that the prince sends out says the prince then came to his father with a very large company of men, larger than was ever seen before. Um, so maybe his father was was worried um, about the, the 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 sort of prince and uh, and his company, but. Again, it doesn't lead to any violence or anything of, of, of that sort, but it's not the kind of relationship or the kind of behaviour, I think, that you would expect of an heir towards his father. Now, another aspect of Henry the King is certainly that he has this image of being quite a virtuous, quite a moral man. But something that you bring out in the article is the fact that as a prince, he was known to be quite a wild individual, quite lascivious. So how do those two images fit together with him? Right. Well, I think this is the absolutely amazing thing. It's clear that he has a conversion, either at his father's deathbed or at his accession. There are plenty of early texts uh, that say that he became another man uh, on his accession as king. Um, there's a whole variety of texts, and we've got to be careful here because the story gets better as time goes on, you know, culminating in Shakespeare. But um, I think there's enough to suggest that the prince uh, felt extremely um, embarrassed, really, at his behaviour. He confessed, you know, he gets very religious, even as his father is dying. And uh, he he sort of takes a solemn vow to, to rule well, all this kind of thing, that there is a personal change. Now, in some of these texts, you're getting his father giving a kind of deathbed speech, um, sort of encouraging him to, to be a good king and all of that kind of thing. We can't know exactly exactly uh, what happens there. But there is a moment of conversion. And I think this explains a lot about Henry's uh, kingship. Um, it's also interesting that these texts comment on the bad weather at the time of his accession and coronation and what people made of that at the time. It was apparently snowy and some people uh, were sort of seeing this as a, a kind of a new rigorous regime, um, a new coldness, if you like, a clinicalness about it, the king expecting everybody to behave in a certain kind of way. Uh, and I think we, we see Henry showing this great religiosity pretty early in the day, uh, founding these monasteries, a very unusual thing to do, and perhaps these are a, a, a sort of act of, of, of piety um, to expunge the, the sins of the past, the, his very hard line against the Lollards, his desire to control the church, all of this, this kind of thing. I think we do see a real moral conversion uh, on his accession. You've talked quite a bit about the sources that we used to, to get this picture of Henry's character. I mean, how much can they be trusted from this period? I think they can be trusted. I mean, I think that uh, if you've got a chronicle like Thomas Walsingham's Chronica Maiora, I think there's no reason to to doubt uh, what he says. There. And he's the one that has this open letter and has the, the comments on, uh, you know, the, the things changing at the accession of the king. I think there's no real reason to, why should he lie about those kinds of things? But the other texts I would say that are very important here are the Latin lives of Henry V that were written in the late 
late 1430s. One of these is connected with Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester. That's a text written by an Italian called Titus Livius. And another one, uh, known as the Pseudo Elmum, seems to be linked to Walter Lord Hungerford uh, and also uh, with John Somerset, the king's, uh, or the king's son's position, but he's around earlier as well. And they are the ones that really say a great deal about his conversion and about his lasciviousness before becoming prince. Now, these were texts that were meant to show the brilliance of Henry the Fifth. And I think what they are emphasizing here is that it's almost a saint's life, you know, it's the confessions of St. Augustine uh, that he did. Well, in fact, one of these texts likens him to Beckett. You know, he becomes a different man on his uh, accession there. And I don't think they could have written in the late 1430s when there's still plenty of people alive who'd remembered him or dedicated the works, one case anyway, to his son, Henry VI, if and if this was untrue, you know, I think it's got to be true. So Henry's behaviour as a prince sort of changed quite sharply when he became a king. Was this typical for medieval princes in this era or was Henry unusual in this respect? Yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, I need to do a bit more work, I think, on uh, these uh, earlier princes, but I'm not aware of such an abrupt change in anybody. And of course, Henry's perhaps unusual in that he wasn't born to kingship. Uh, if you take the Black Prince, you know, he knows all the way through his life that he's going to be uh, king in due course. Unfortunately, he dies before his father he isn't. The same with Edward I. You know, these are people who are born into the purple and therefore their behaviour is coloured uh, by that all the way along. Uh, whereas Henry is not and his father's title to the throne is dubious. I mean, Henry IV sees lots and lots of rebellions uh, against the king as well. Uh, and perhaps also, therefore, the prince is in a, a, a difficult position because he is part of this uh, regime that is challenged. So it's a much more difficult princeship for him than uh, for the other people previously. Do you think that these um, stories about his younger days, do they make Henry seem a bit more of a human character and a bit less of a sort of stereotypical virtuous warrior? Uh, at one level, they do. And uh, I mean, I think it also shows, you know, a man with bad judgment. It shows a teenager, doesn't it? It sort of makes his life uh, come. And also the idea of uh, having unsuitable friends and, and all of that. However, the conversion on his accession is, I think, a bit spooky, really. It kind of is very artificial, could argue. Uh, perhaps that's just with a sort of, uh, you know, looking back with the views of history. Uh, but for somebody to, to focus so much, you know, it shows they took kingship very significant. And it does indicate a kind of ruthless single-mindedness that makes Henry perhaps less attractive to us. And so we're talking now when we're approaching the 600th anniversary of the beginning of Henry V's reign. Do you think it's time for a reappraisal of Henry or do you think we sort of roughly have him about right? I think it's always good to reappraise. And the beauty of history is we can keep going forever. You know, at the end of the day, it's a personal interpretation uh, of 
all of this. Um, I think we've got to keep reevaluating people in history all the time. And I certainly think that we need a more nuanced view of him. We need to know more about him as Prince. We know surprisingly little, and there hasn't really been much serious study uh, about him. I think as King as well, the trouble is there's a lot of propaganda put about by the king himself. And that continues. I mean, it's amazing how much is written about Henry V or how much is written about the Battle of Agincourt in particular. Isn't a parallel for Edward III and the Battle of Cressy. There is something strikes the public imagination at the time, but also Henry himself, I think, promulgates this, this picture uh, of himself. He's the only king we have who has lives written about him. I think the last one is William the Conqueror. He's the only king, really, who has chronicles written during the reign, like the uh, jester Henrique Quinty, the deeds of Henry V, which basically focuses on him hammering the Lollards, beating the French at the Battle of Agincourt and beating them again at the Battle of the Seine in 1416 and holding on to Harfleur. You know, it's a very focused work. These sorts of texts are unique, really, and there's so many of them in a, a short space of time. There's something going on both from the king's own uh, ideas of his kingship and putting forward a view of it, but also that there seems to be a desire to write these, these sorts of works. There's lots of poems later about Agincourt uh, in particular too i mean it's just it's quite amazing how much material there is and just finally we've got the anniversary the 600th anniversary of agincourt coming up relatively soon what, what can we expect to hear sort of in the run-up to that what big things are being planned for that I'm pleased you asked me about the 600th anniversary of Agincourt. Lots of exciting things coming up. I'm working with the Royal Armouries on a planned exhibition in the Tower of London, very appropriate. Uh, uh, it's where the Duke of Orleans was put after his capture at uh, the Battle of Agincourt. Um, there will be lots of exciting activities at the, uh, the Tower of London. Uh, we're hoping as well to have concerts. Uh, there will be some city events um, there because, of course, as nowadays, it's sort of London merchants who paid for the war in 1415. There'll be academic conferences. I'm sure there'll be lots of uh, exciting things happening at the battlefield in Azancourt itself. I know the Centre Historique there are revising all of their uh, displays, renewing them. Um, interesting at present, if you go there, that the French come a close second rather than being defeated. So it'll be interesting to see what they make of it at the anniversary in uh, 2015. I'm sure there'll be lots of exciting things. Performances of uh, Henry V, uh, I think there'll be a lot of books coming out. Uh, Peter Hoskins, for instance, is recreating the walk of Henry between Harfleur and uh, Azancourt, rather as he's done for the Black Prince's journey. So I think we'll get a lot of new insights uh, into it, as well as having a really uh, fun time at all these events. Yes, and I'm sure we'll be covering a lot of this within the magazine. Is there, is there anywhere else people can go to find out more information about what's happening? I think the Royal Armouries are planning a website, but in the meantime, if you're interested in soldiers, don't forget the database of medieval soldiers, which is at www.medievalsoldier.org. And I am at Southampton University, uh, currently involved in a who's who at Agincourt. I think some of it might be available. It's what my colleagues call a soft launch uh, of it. But there we put it in little thumbnail uh, sketches of, of the Welsh and the nobility and 
and others. We know we're on the campaign and we're trying to say, you know, whether we think they were at the battle uh, or, or not. Um, in time, we're hoping to get a database of French at the battle uh, as well. But I think keep looking at the Royal Armouries uh, website as well as uh, the Medieval Soldier uh, website because we'll be putting links to this who's who at Agincourt on there. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down. And learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. That was Anne Curry, Professor of Medieval History at Southampton University. You can read her article about Henry V in our March issue, which is on sale now and also contains pieces on the Industrial Revolution, Nelson's Navy, France in the First World War, Richard III and plenty more. It's available in all good newsagents and digitally. Tudor statesman Thomas Cromwell is a name on many people's lips nowadays thanks to his starring role in Hilary Mantel's two Booker Prize winning novels, Wolf Hall and Bring Up the Bodies. That's the fiction, but what do we know about Cromwell the historical character? And do Mantell's novels help or hinder our understanding of the man? To find out, I headed to Oxford to interview one of the country's leading Tudor historians, Dermot McCulloch. Why would you feel that Thomas Cromwell is a man who needs redeeming? Well, over the years, he's been extraordinarily written down, and partly that's uh, because... For Roman Catholics, he clearly, obviously, is a villain. And right from the Reformation, that was so, because uh, if you blame Thomas Cromwell, it let Henry VIII off the hook, and that was handy for his daughter Mary. But uh, it's much wider than that, because Anglicans also felt that he was a villain, I think mainly because of the dissolution of the monasteries. And, and once Anglicanism took a, a rather turn against the Reformation, the dissolution of the monasteries became a bad thing rather than a good thing, as it was to start with. So there's all that tradition. And then I think in the 20th century, a lot of historians saw him as the sort of ruthless politician they saw in mainland Europe at the time. So there's a lot to work against. And there hasn't been really much consistent pro-Thomas Cromwell line over the years. John Fox tried it in the Book of Martyrs. 
His Cromwell is a very sympathetic Cromwell, and as a result, we know quite a lot about Cromwell from really quite convincing uh, eyewitness stories. But there was a job to do there. My old supervisor, Geoffrey Elton, started that job. Geoffrey uh, really felt that Cromwell was a hero, and he devoted his career to showing that Cromwell had invented really everything except sliced bread in Tudor England, uh, and particularly had developed the sort of monarchy which was bounded by law, bounded by the conventions of bureaucracy. And, and, and for Geoffrey Elton, that was a very important thing. Would you follow him then? Would you, would you say that those were the, the reasons why we should think that Cromwell was a good man, or are there other things you, you'd point to as well? Curiously, I think Geoffrey Elton got the main thing about Cromwell wrong. He thought that Cromwell had the big idea about splitting from Rome creating an independent church in this country, creating a country which was, in 16th century technical terms, an empire, which had no superior under God. I don't think so. And none of Sir Geoffrey's students uh, now would put that point of view over. And it, it's curious that so many of us who went on to have academic careers have really quietly taken apart Geoffrey's uh, ideas on that. No, I'd, I'd look elsewhere. Uh, I'd say that that big idea was the king's. Uh, and, and who better than that monstrous heap of conceit, Henry VIII, to have such a, a, an idea as breaking a thousand years of links with Rome. But Cromwell helped him see the way forward, how to do it, which was through Parliament. And yet you could argue that Parliament had never done anything as important before as enacting the break with Rome. It gave Parliament a role in English politics, which it didn't have in any other major European state. Uh, and you see other European parliaments withering away over the next two centuries. Uh, and yet the English parliament goes on to do so many other things, include, including, of course, in the end, killing a king, Charles I. Uh, and although Thomas Cromwell clearly did not envisage any of that. It's Thomas Cromwell who, who set that process at work by showing Henry VIII that he could legislate a reformation through Parliament. So in that sense, his, his main achievement is being a great parliamentarian. It's certainly one of them. And the other thing about him, which I, I want to stress very much in my biography of Thomas Cromwell, is that he was an idealist. Um, he's often seen, even by some admirers, as just a, a ruthless politician uh, with an eye to the main chance. I don't think that's right. It's part of the Thomas Cromwell, which is reality. But the other part is someone who actually risked his life and his career to push forward a Protestant Reformation and a very particular sort of Protestant Reformation. The Reformation, not of Martin Luther so much, but of the, the much more extreme, thoroughgoing reformers of the city of Zurich. Uh, the reformation of Ulrich Zwingli, who, who was dead by the time that Cromwell came to power, but who left a successor, Heinrich Bullinger. And during the 1530s, when Cromwell was in power, links started between Zurich and England, and they were religious links. Uh, a young Swiss uh, protege of Heinrich Bullinger came to England and, and was given a, a thoroughly good time by the, the Protestants, the evangelicals of Tudor England. Young men from England went to Zurich. And who set that up? Well, superficially, it looks like Archbishop Cranmer, Thomas Cromwell's great friend. But you go into it, and you see that all these people had no links with Cranmer, 
but they had links with Cromwell. In other words, what you're seeing there is a deliberate process of infecting England with Protestantism from Zurich, instituted by Thomas Cromwell, with Thomas Cranmer as a front man. And the reason I can say that Cranmer was not responsible is that the sort of theology uh, in the Zurich Reformation was theology he didn't approve of. They said things about the Eucharist, the Holy Communion, which Cranmer didn't approve of even as a Protestant. Henry VIII actually hated the things that Zurich said about the, uh, the Eucharist. So what you get out of that complicated story is that Thomas Cromwell set up a link with a city in Europe with which England had no natural contacts for Reformation reasons, knowing that his king hated the sort of theology of Zurich and was actually burning people who held that sort of theology back in England. So really he was actually endangering his own life by doing so. And when Henry VIII killed Thomas Cromwell in 1540, had him executed, it was primarily for heresy. If you look at the Parliamentary Act of Attainder, which gives the reasons why Cromwell died, it was that he was a heretic as well as a traitor. But the heresy that mattered. So in Henry VIII's terms, Cromwell really died for the right reason. I mean, he, uh, Henry VIII killed a heretic, Thomas Cromwell. How did Thomas Cromwell, who, who was quite a consummate politician, how did he allow himself to be brought down like that and then to, and to be killed by a king he'd served so closely? Isn't that extraordinary? I, I just do think that in the end, idealism overcame him. Uh, I also get the impression, uh, looking at the sequence of events from 1538, 1539, 1540, he was losing his grip. 1538 was the year of his greatest power. He was vicegerent in spiritual, the title no one has ever held in England before, so everyone always mispronounces it vice-regent. No, vicegerent. And what was the vicegerent? It was really uh, the, uh, the equivalent of Cardinal Wolsey in the previous generation, the man who held all the supreme power in the church on behalf of someone else. In Wolsey's case, the Pope. In Cromwell's case, Henry VIII. He had complete control over the church. He'd also beaten most of his political enemies either into silence or into destruction by having them executed. So 1538, supreme confidence, and that seems to have disturbed his judgment thereafter. Thereafter, everything he touched began turning wrong. The worst uh, example, of course, was the Anne of Cleves marriage, set up for the king as wife number four, uh, and set up because it would link England into the other Reformation, not Zurich this time, but the, the Lutheran Reformation of the Empire. Anne of Cleves, although Cleves was not exactly a Protestant state, represented a, a marriage which would take England into Reformation Germany. And so Cromwell pushed it and pushed it and pushed it. And, and one of the fascinating things I discovered uh, when beginning to research on Cromwell alongside Cranmer was uh, an account of a conversation between Cranmer and Cromwell, which clearly uh, indicates that Cranmer opposed the Anne of Cleves marriage. He said that the king ought to marry someone he could talk to in his own language. And of course, Anne at that stage wouldn't know any English. Uh, and Cromwell just came back at him and, and, and shouted, no, 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 there was none meat for him in this realm. And there you get Cromwell, not just the Protestant idealist, but also the, the, the savvy politician, because the thought of the king marrying some nobleman's daughter from England would have ruined his position.
And so he ignored what Cranmer said and went on pushing that marriage, which famously, of course, was a disaster because the king sexually couldn't bear her. And, and thus the king was humiliated. The worst thing you could do to Henry VIII, sexually humiliate him. And, and you mentioned that Cromwell didn't feel able to marry the king to someone from one of England's noble families. Does that point to a wider issue between him and the nobility of the country? Yes, that's really one of the themes of Cromwell's career. Uh, you look at Henry VIII's reign, and it's a sort of alternation in government between government by upper-class twit, you might say, and government by capable low-born minister. And the first low-born minister is Thomas Wolsey, Cromwell's old master, and, and he's low-born, rises right past the nobility, right up the career ladder. Same thing happened again with Thomas Cromwell. What was he? He was the son of a, a dodgy pub landlord from Putney, or the Shearman's son, as he's otherwise called. Uh, and yet he becomes top dog in the nation. And the nobility clearly hated that. Uh, particularly those who hated his religion as well, like uh, Thomas Howard, Duke of Norfolk. And in the last year of Cromwell's life, he started making the sort of mistakes which they could no longer ignore. And through the 1530s, you, you get the nobility realizing they really can't do much while he had the king's favor. So a whole series of toadying friendly letters in Cromwell's surviving papers from the Duke of Norfolk, for instance. But come 1540, uh, the first bad mistake after the Anne of Cleves mistake was something which sounds very technical, dissolving one of the last monasteries in England, Thetford Priory in Norfolk, which was the family mausoleum of the Dukes of Norfolk. And the Duke wanted it, yes, dissolved, but then refounded as a chantry college where priests could go on singing for the souls of the Howard family. And it wasn't. Simple fact. It's the second last ordinary monastery in England to be dissolved, February 1540. No more college, nothing. So that's got the Duke of Norfolk against him. Then later on, in the spring 1540, the Earl of Essex died. The Busher Earl of Essex, one of the oldest titles in England. And hey presto, what does Cromwell do? He gets the king to make him Earl of Essex, the Putney landlord's son. Worse still, another Essex nobleman, uh, John de Vere, uh, Earl of Oxford, died in that same spring. And he was Lord Great Chamberlain of England, one of the great old officers of the land. Surprise, surprise, who gets it next? Thomas Cromwell, Earl of Essex. And you can just see the nobility thinking, that's it, enough is enough. At the moment, in other words, of Thomas Cromwell's greatest triumph, he was brought down because the nobility particularly Thomas Howard, Duke of Norfolk, decided that was it. And of course now they have the king on the back foot, humiliated sexually. That's the moment to pour poison in the king's ear. And so Cromwell fell. It's interesting because Thomas Cromwell was quite intimately involved in quite a few of the king's marriages and famously he helped to bring down Anne Boleyn. Do, do you think he's, he's right to be cast as the villain in that story? Yes, has been? yes absolutely. Uh, if, if you want... The bad Thomas Cromwell, uh, I, I really don't think you can defend him in the Anne Bullen uh, business because there was his natural religious ally, it, it would seem, and yet during spring 1536, Cromwell was the man who organised her downfall. Uh, you, you can certainly say they're slightly different sorts of Protestants. Anne looked to France uh, in religious terms and I think also in terms of political alliance. Cromwell looked to the empire, 
in terms of political alliance. So that they're, they're arguing about that and also very injudiciously in the middle of the dissolution of the first monasteries said that all the money ought to go into good causes. Uh, it should be spent on hospitals and schools, things like that, not suiting Cromwell's plans at all. And so, yes, I mean, he, he, he behaved in an, a totally ruthless, totally amoral way. He framed her. I, I don't think there's any doubt that she was not guilty of all the ridiculous charges, the adultery, incest, quite absurd, uh, and, and destroyed her. What would you say his motivation was there? Was it just to curry the favour of Henry VIII? I think to uh, sustain his own position, Anne was becoming a threat rather than an ally. And it may be that he, this is speculation on my part, that he wanted to save the Reformation by ditching Anne. Uh, if the king was going to turn against Anne, that could easily scupper the developing Reformation of which he was, in a sense, ahead. Uh, and so she had to go. Did it weigh on his conscience? Do we know what happened? Did he feel any guilt about the downfall of Anne Boleyn? Well, not a hint. I don't think there's any evidence at all that he felt guilt. But the, the problem is always with Cromwell that it's very difficult to know how he thought. Uh, he didn't leave a diary. He did leave some very interesting uh, to-do lists, memoranda of what to do, but these are just business papers. We get some anecdotes at various stages of his career, but we don't have the inner Thomas Cromwell. Uh, we don't have much outgoing correspondence from him, for instance. I think there's a very good reason for that. I think when he fell, uh, the household knew, uh, they heard he's arrested, uh, they knew his papers would be confiscated. And so what they did before the king's men arrived was to burn the outray, burn the letter books, which would have had the copies of his outgoing correspondence, because that's what incriminates you. In a sense, it doesn't really matter what people write to you. And so what they did was to give the king's commissioners when they arrived the uh, in-tray all the correspondence coming in, which we still have. We have a vast archive from Cromwell. But it's all the letters are written to him, with the exceptions of a few original letters written to other people which survive in other people's archives. And that makes Cromwell really quite difficult to write about because you don't have the innerness of the man there. So you don't think it's possible to get a complete picture of Thomas Cromwell? It's very difficult. Um, uh, a scholar called Rory McIntaggart did a, a, a marvellous job on going through the archives of German ambassadors which survive in Weimar now. And, and this was back in the 1990s. And suddenly a flood of information came to us from the German ambassadors who were reporting back to their masters in Germany, talking uh, about what they had said with Thomas Cromwell. And suddenly you, you got the sense of this, this uh, urgent politician desperately trying to push the Reformation forward. Of course, you, it, that's what he would say to them, wouldn't it? But this is not the Thomas Cromwell we'd ever heard about before. Uh, a, a man who really walked the walk and talked the talk of the, the, the conviction politician. Quite remarkable stuff. So we know quite a lot about Cromwell's later years, his, his years in power and then eventual downfall. What do we know, if, if anything, about his younger time? This is the fascination of the man. We know a bit about his father, mainly because his father kept getting into trouble. And so in the archives of the Manor of Wimbledon, 
you get lots of fines for uh, his dad was always watering down beer and got to get into fights, that sort of thing. So we, we, we can sort of place the young Thomas, young, very young Thomas Cromwell. What happens next is, is really mysterious. He went abroad and we've got various stories which are plausible, uh, that he was a mercenary soldier for a while. He worked with a very wealthy Italian banker. But we don't know enough. And what we do know is that when he comes back, he, he is an extraordinary man with the sort of education you'd expect of a very wealthy, uh, pampered nobleman. The, the sort of breadth of knowledge, culture, that you might get from a clever king. And that's so mysterious. We just don't know how he got it. The, the, the command of languages, the feeling of being in touch with the latest cultural developments in mainland Europe, all that's a mystery. And I'm not sure it, it's a mystery we'll ever solve. I'd love to solve it. And I, I live in hope that something will turn up. But uh, don't hold your breath. Is that almost in a way a bit of a parallel with someone like Shakespeare that he just emerged with all these talents, skills, and knowledge, and no one hundred percent sure where where it came from? That's a very acute thing to say. I think uh, yes, that at the beginning of the century you've got Cromwell, and at the end of the century you've got Shakespeare, and people can hardly believe the, the talents of these men. So much so you know, that people try and say Shakespeare must be someone else. Well, no one's ever said Cromwell should be someone else, but the ability of these people to absorb a wide cultural referent is, is something really remarkable. Uh, and it, it does mark out Tudor England as, as having a, a, a very special quality, I think. At the moment, Cromwell, his, his star is rising, certainly, because of the Hilary Mantel novels. How do you think they might change public perceptions of Cromwell? I think they will change our view of Cromwell profoundly, because they are extraordinarily good. Uh, they've won every prize going, and, and so they should. They're, they're a gripping read. They're, they're one of that, that rare category of historical novels which really bring a period to light. Uh, uh, Mantel knows the period intimately, uh, and I gasped as I read her novels because of the things she knew. And they, they, it wasn't flourished learning. It, it was just there for those who, who know. And, and the picture she paints seemed to me to be absolutely right Perhaps there should be more religion in it, but then I would say that, wouldn't I? Um, I? I certainly think that my old supervisor, Sir Geoffrey Elton, would have loved her picture of Sir Thomas Moore, a man whom Elton loathed. Uh, and it, it, it really will change things around. It's for the 21st century, really what Charles Dickens was about the French Revolution to this country. It will be the picture people will remember of the 1530s for the next century or so. Often this question is asked about historical novels. Has she got it all right? Are there significant factual errors in, in books like Warfall? And does it matter if there are? I've not noticed a single factual error. What I've noticed is some extremely ingenious uh, novelistic speculation. And that's what a novel should do. I mean, her picture of why Cromwell destroyed the people he did in the fall of Queen Anne Bullen seems to me to be absolutely masterly. Uh, and and she, she projects it back, uh, to spoil the story for some of your listeners, she projects it back to the fall of Thomas Wolsey. And Cromwell is uh, destroying people in revenge for what they did to his beloved old master. That seems to me uh, extremely psychologically plausible. 
because one of the complications of Thomas Cromwell is that he clearly uh, adored his old master, hugely admired him, was loyal to him after lots more toadying servants had deserted the cardinal. And, and that's unexpected, given that he is the, the motor of the English Protestant Reformation. And yet he, he was loyal to this man. I, I think sheer admiration, the man who'd come up the same way, who was his role model in life, uh, the, 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 the low-born man who goes to the top, and that's, that's him. You've talked a, a bit about the Anne Boleyn downfall and some of other more sort of vengeful actions. Even despite that, do you feel that it's still possible to paint him as in some ways a good man? Oh, a good man. It's difficult, isn't it? Uh, there was lots which was bad about him in anyone's terms. And I, I don't think many of us should go around getting people executed. But they all did it. Um, and on the other side, you have to say that if you think in any way the English Reformation was a good thing, or produced good results, he was absolutely in the heart of it. And not just in the machinations of the 1530s, but in, in cultivating extremely talented young men for the future. If you look at some of the great servants of Queen Elizabeth I, Sir Nicholas Bacon, for instance, uh, William Cecil, these are, in a sense, protégés of Cromwell. They learnt their trade uh, beginning in the 1530s, and without him, that assemblage of enormous talent wouldn't have been there. So if that's a mark of goodness, not sure good is the right word, but... Um, uh, there is the case for the defense with Thomas Cromwell, that it's, it's not all mindless negative politicking for immediate political advantage. It does seem to have a long-term program. All the schemes which survive in his papers for improving the realm, it's all of a piece with his reforming intentions for the church. So, so I suppose one's view of Cromwell depends to a large extent on what you think of the Reformation, really, and how important that was for English history. That's a lot to do with it. I, I, you can't get away from it. And all historians are, are going to be partial. We're all going to have our points of view. Uh, on the whole, I think the Reformation in this country had very good results. It had some rotten, horrible results too. But uh, if you see anything good about the way that England has developed, it's pluralism, uh, it's... Uh, light scepticism towards religious dogma. These things can be dated back in a slightly complicated way to the 16th century. And part of that original drama is with a major actor, Thomas Cromwell. That was Dermot McCulloch. Dermot has written an article on Cromwell for our March edition, which is on sale now, as I mentioned earlier. He's also presenting a documentary on Cromwell to be broadcast on BBC Two soon. And if you'd like to discover the story of one of Cromwell's most prominent victims, Anne Boleyn, then do listen out for next week's podcast, when we'll also be discussing Britain's slave owners. And that's about it for this week. Do let us know what you think. We're on email, podcast at historyextra.com. We're on Twitter at historyextra or facebook.com forward slash historyextra. The History Extra weekly podcast was recorded in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher. 